This podcast is offered by San Francisco Zen Center on the web at sfzc.org. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. Good morning and welcome everyone. You uh, braved the annular eclipse, which apparently we're still in the midst of for another half hour or so, although you wouldn't know here in San Francisco with all the fog. You know, whether or not it was a usual day or something different. Um, each morning here at Beginner's Mind Temple, before we begin our nine o'clock work circle, we ring the dencho bell, the big dencho bell downstairs uh, in the basement. And uh, as we do so, we observe a moment of silence uh, to reflect on peace. And this was a tradition that started about 20 years ago during the, I believe, the Afghan and Iraqi wars. And so we have continued to do this uh, ever since then. And so before I continue with the talk, um, I thought we would take a moment in light of the tragic events that are unfolding in Israel and Gaza this past week, including the horrific violence and the tremendous loss of life to, to um, ring the bell. I'm gonna ask the dawn actually to ring the bell that is in here and then invite us to observe together 60 seconds of silence during which we might reflect on and offer prayers for peace and well-being for whoever in the world may be experiencing the impact of war and conflict and everything that uh, is related to those events. So if you would, please. May all beings be free from hate, fear, sorrow, and confusion. May all beings experience safety, freedom, dignity, benevolence, and peace. Thank you for joining me in this wish for peace. For those of you who might know me, might not know me, my name is Tenzin David Zimmerman, and I am a resident priest here at Beginner's Mind Temple. And I also serve as the, uh, what am I, central abbot of San Francisco Zen Center. And uh, even in times of great distress and sorrow, it's important that we also make time to express gratitude and appreciation. 
So today at City Center, we're actually having a special celebration. Uh, we're holding what is we're calling a Members and Volunteers Appreciation Day. And uh, we used to hold these uh, kind of regular annual membership and volunteer appreciation events uh, twice a year, I believe. And uh, we haven't done so, unfortunately, since the pandemic. So this is our first time in four years that we've had the opportunity to do so. So this is a great joy. And uh, so this celebration today, it's an opportunity for us and for San Francisco Zen Center as an institution, a community to acknowledge and express our deep gratitude for the, the great Sangha right, of volunteers and members and supporters who contribute their energy, their skills, and their resources to the practice at San Francisco Zen Center's three temples. Um, I would say actually four temples because we have the online Zendo, you know, thank you online Zendo temple participants. And uh, I would say that it's kind of the heartfelt feeling for many here uh, in the community that uh, the very survival of San Francisco Zen Center has depended since its founding on the significant generosity and friendship of the wider Sangha uh, that has practiced and supported Zen Center for its 60 plus years of existence. So of course this support has taken many different forms. Uh, for example, we have volunteers who've made generous donations of time and labor and talents, whether in the kitchens, the various kitchens at Zen Center, the bookstore, the, the library, the garden, um, and also through our uh, outreach activities. And also members have supported the work period at Tassajara. I don't know if how many people have ever been to a work period at Tassajara. A few of you. And then also we have work days at Green Gulch Farm. That happens, I believe, twice a year. And members have supported to build and patronize many of Zen Center's businesses, such as Green's Restaurant. How many people have been to Green's? If you haven't been so, I encourage you to check it out. It's a wonderful vegetarian fair. And also, of course, contributed significant financial support. And this way of working together and practicing generosity together, practicing dana paramita, has been a cornerstone of Zen practice. And it's a means by which practitioners can take zazen, take our meditation practice or mindfulness practice from our cushions, our seats, meditation hall, out into the world, while also forging intimate connections within the Sangha. So as part of this day of appreciation, right after this talk, we're gonna be holding a short ceremony in the courtyard in recognition of Zen Center's members, volunteers and supporters, and also offer a complimentary open lunch with lots of great food again. Um, and even if this is your first time visiting Zen Center, I'm curious, how many people this is your first time? Great, welcome, welcome. Yeah. Even so, uh, you were invited to join the uh, ceremony as well as the lunch because your presence is important and appreciated. So thank you all for being here. Um, so given the occasion, 
uh, I thought I'd say a few things this morning about the place and value of Sangha in our practice. And uh, before I say more, I'd like you to, I'd like to invite you to take a moment to look around the room and see who is present today. And for those of you who are online, if you are willing, maybe you can uh, turn on your cameras for a moment and see who is also in the online Zendo. And if you're comfortable making uh, eye contact with others, please do so. Maybe offering a brief uh, greeting, hello, a smile, something that uh, says, I see you, I am connected to you, All right? Just looking around and noticing the many other Buddhas here who are creating this Buddha field of practice together, right? And who have supported you in ways maybe known and unknown in the past and perhaps even in the future. So just keeping that in mind. And there may be someone here today who you haven't met before who will become a very close Dharma friend, maybe even a teacher uh, for you. So thank you all for engaging me in the activity. And this is really an invitation to just notice the Buddha field in which we are embedded, in which we are a fundamental part. Right? And this is, I think of it as the literal Sangha body. You know, we talk in Zen practice about the body of practice, right? And oftentimes that's referring to this physical body and the five sense gates in which we experience the world. Um, but just as there's a, our individual bodies of practice, there is a communal body of practice. And so another name for the communal body of practice is Sangha. So Sangha is one of the three treasures in Buddhism, along with Buddha and Dharma. And as committed practitioners uh, of Buddhism, we vow to take refuge in these three treasures. So we take refuge in the Buddha treasure. This is to take refuge in our essential awake nature or being. And we also vow to take refuge in the Dharma treasure, which is to embrace the teachings that point us to this, our awake nature, this awake being. And then we take refuge in Sangha, the Sangha treasure, which is to rely on those who likewise hold the intention to wake up from suffering and who are also walking the path with us. And Sangha is a Sanskrit word. And it, the meaning uh, that it has is um, association or an assembly or a union of people. So usually when it's translated from Sanskrit, it's translated as community or order. Uh, but I think Sangha is just a wonderful word in and of itself. And uh, one source that I read said that Sangha literally means that which is struck together well, that which is struck together well, you know, fabricated together, come together well. So uh, this is idea that something that's solid and that doesn't come apart very easily. Uh, the the um, concept of Sangha can be parceled in several ways. So originally in the time of Shakyamuni, 
uh, Buddha, the Sangha was technically just the ordained monks and nuns. So the bhikkhus and bukinis. And the ordained members of the Sangha, you know, they shared common vows and they shared a, a full-time and intensive formal way of practice along with what was known as the following in the Parimoksha, which is 227 or more rules that were governing their way of life. And then later on, the laymen and laywomen followers of the Buddha were included in the framing of the Sangha. And altogether, the ordained and the lay followers are known as the fourfold Sangha. Now, just in a more contemporary acknowledgement, there was no non-binary category of Sangha. So maybe today we would have a fifth-fold expression of Sangha. Uh, and also historically, due to patriarchy, it's often been the male monks that have been seen as the primary Sangha. So fortunately, in more contemporary times, that's not so much the case, at least uh, uh, hopefully here in the United States. And however, um, in the Mayana view, the later uh, Dharma view, we can widen the understanding of Sangha even further to include all living beings. So not just people, but animals, uh, plants, trees, some would say also the waters and the mountains, right? And uh, so doing so indicates the harmonious interdependence of all of life, right? of all beings. And so taking refuge in Sangha in this way is about waking up and taking refuge in your interdependent life. Everything makes you in this moment. You're dependent on the entire universe to be here right now in this way that you're showing up. Um, Thich Nhat Hanh, he has a more contemporary and you could say democratic orientation when he defines Sangha as a community of friends practicing the Dharma together in order to bring about and to maintain awareness. The essence of Sangha, he says, is awareness, understanding, acceptance, harmony, and love. Again. The essence of Sangha is awareness, understanding, acceptance, harmony, and love. So Thai's definition draws from the concept of Kalyanamitra. And Kalyanamitra is another Sanskrit word, which means spiritual friend. Right? So this is uh, someone who is good, true, virtuous, who's upright, who's beneficial, who cares for your spiritual practice and well-being and liberation, just as much as they care for their, their own. And so I think of it another way to describe Sangha is as a collective of Kalyanamitras. Sangha, collective of Kalyanamitras. Now, Thai's emphasis on Dharma friendship as the heart what binds Sangha together actually echoes the Buddha's own view. Uh, the Buddha emphasized what he called adm admirable people. And he said admirable people were essential to our success in practice. And basically he defined admirable people as wise practitioners who are, form, who are firm in their conviction 
that spiritual practice is important. And they're also strong in their practice of virtue, generosity, and discernment. And there is this famous uh, passage in the Pali Upada, Upada uh, Sutta, in which the Buddhist attendant Venerable Nanda says the following to the Buddha. This is half of the holy life, Buddha. Admirable friendship, admirable companionship, admirable camaraderie. However, the Buddha corrected him, saying, admirable friendship, admirable companionship, admirable camaraderie is actually the whole of the holy life. When a monk or a practitioner has admirable people as friends, companions, and comrades, the Buddha continued, they can be expected to develop and pursue the Noble Eightfold Path. So what you see is that the Buddha skillfully removed Ananda's idea that the Sangha and the Dharma are separate. One is not half of the other, and the Sangha is not merely helpful in realizing the path. The Sangha is the path. Right? Spiritual friendship is the path. That's how vital it is in our practice together. So then from the get-go, you see that Sangha and Dharma friendship have been considered essential in nourishing and sustaining uh, a strong and vital practice. Sangha deepens practice. Practice deepens Sangha. Now, unless you're a unusually self-disciplined person, of which I'm not, uh, practicing alone can be very difficult. How many people have experiencing practicing alone as being difficult? Yeah, yeah, it's challenging. I think particularly during COVID, many of us experience that where we could have come together physically uh, with others. And so I think most of us uh, find that it's much easier to do a, a challenging practice such as Zen uh, or to change particular habit patterns when you have the support of others. And it's especially too, true when you find that your, your spiritual um, aspirations begin to wane in some way, right? You said at the beginning, you're, oh, I'm going to do meditation every day. And then at some point, you find that's not happening so much. And you're kind of wondering what's going on here. Or maybe you're encountering some kind of difficulties or challenging circumstances in your life that are undercutting your commitment to practice. So it's at times like these where it's very helpful to have others around you, a community of practitioners around you who share the same intentions, the same values, and can kind of serve as Dharma cheerleaders, right? Encouraging you in your practice, encouraging each other, right? To kind of refrain from unwholesome habit patterns and to take up uh, wholesome uh, patterns. And I find this is particularly true when we're trying to take up practices or even values that kind of go against what are the uh, predominant kind of values of a culture, behaviors of a culture, right? So there's all these kind of prevailing winds that we kind of find ourselves as like practitioners, perhaps, perhaps kind of going into, such as um, consumerism, right? And... Um, see there's power hoarding or uh, ambition 
or some kind of cultural insensitivity, right? So it's really helpful to have others uh, support us when we're trying to go against those strong currents uh, and voices around us. Uh, the Zen teacher, Domio Burke, has written that one of the benefits of Sangha is that it provides what she calls positive peer, peer pressure. Positive peer pressure, right? So, so the presence and the positive support of other like-minded people are what help us actually to fulfill our wholesome aspirations, right? And even at times, um, help us to form those aspirations to begin with. Right? I had my my first taste of sangha when I was six years old. Due to unfortunate uh, family circumstances, my brother and I, my brother's 10 months older than me, uh, were placed into a Mennonite children's home. This was in Millersville, Pennsylvania. And overall, I found the Mennonite staff who take care of us children in the home to be kind and compassionate, dedicated, and generous. And what was palpable was the way in which their Christian faith deeply informed their way of being and engaging with others. You know, it deeply informed their work ethic and also the approach that they took to structuring our communal life together. So we said our prayers at our meals. You know, we uh, got together and went to church regularly. You know, we kind of reflected on the teachings of uh, Jesus and so on. So I think this early experience of spiritual community planted in me my own um, bodhisattva vow, right? And the wish to take up a life of service. And inside, in hindsight, I realized that it also made it easier for me when I first came to Zen Center to feel at home. Actually, the children's home was a stately brick building, basically like this, right? So I was like, hey, this is familiar. What, what is this, right? And even later, when I became a resident, I was like, I know this. I, I know how to do this, right? So anyone who's been practicing with the Sangha for a period of time probably recognizes the value and benefits of Sangha and how they are multifold. Uh, for example, Sangha provides modeling, right? It's an opportunity to learn by observing others. I mean, you have come into the room for the first time and just kind of see what what are the what are the what is what is everyone else doing when you come into this room? Huh, everyone's silent together. Everyone seems to be in some state of meditation, you know, and uh, walking with kind of awareness of their body and their presence and how they engage with others. That's a form of modeling, right? And so uh, particularly, you know, when we're observing others who maybe have been practitioners for a longer time, who seem to be, if you will, mature practitioners, how it is that they embody and express and uphold the practice, uphold the Zen forms and the, the teachings of the Dharma. And then being in Sangha, then we can observe, you know, how everyone partakes of the forms of our daily life, you know, our meditation, how we work together, how we chant together, how we eat together, the ways that we relate together, even when we're engaging in disagreements or conflict. How do we do that in a way that is respectful, kind, considerate, right? Uh, 
also what we learn when we watch others is the way in which uh, they express the Dharma values, ethics, and teachings of Buddhism in everyday life. And it can also give us confidence in the transformative power of practice, right? Because you see over time how people change through practice. It's really quite amazing when new people first come to Zen Center and they start engaging in practice. You see somehow that their character changes in subtle and beautiful ways, right? and uh, ways that we ourselves might even notice. And I had people, when I first started practice, who said, you know, who brought that to my awareness on a region, I was like, no, I haven't changed. I'm the same person I was. And realized later, it's like, oh, I have changed, right? And, um, and I also think we can learn more from others uh, how they model, model practice than we can actually learn from reading books. And so many of us, we may have started engaging with Dharma practice by reading lots of books. It's inspiring and so on. But until you actually come into the company of others and see how they express and manifest the teachings of Dharma, what a, a lot of what's in the books doesn't have the same uh, palpable, tangible uh, kind of sense of um, understanding and knowing uh, to it. Of course, that said, the truth is sometimes you learn... Um, as much about how not to practice or behave by watching other Sangha members than you do about uh, how to practice. You know, this is something maybe you realized when you were uh, growing up and you watched your parents and you said, when I'm their age, I'm not going to be like that, right? Which is fine, you know? We see what works and doesn't work. And then we decide, I'm going to choose a different way because I see that that way of being isn't so skillful and helpful. Sangha also offers us a practice mirror. Uh, other people help us to see our own behaviors, our, our opinions, our habitual tendencies, and our limitations, you know, the way that we express ourselves through our words and our actions, right? And also we get our sense of self, how we perceive our own sense of self gets uh, reflected back to us. By, uh, by others, including the positive uh, aspects of how we perceive ourselves, as well as the negative aspects of how we perceive ourselves. And of course, we may not always like what we see in the Sangha mirror, right? You know, I know sometimes I've been kind of annoyed when people have pointed out to me I wasn't this kind, considerate, you know, generous person that I had imagined myself to be, right? And that was a moment to kind of check in and go, wait a second, if others aren't experiencing that way, me in that way, when what am I doing or not doing to manifest that if that's something that I really feel is important, right? And uh, of course, it's also true that sometimes the reflections others provide us can be a bit distorted by their own karmic overlays. So you have to take you know feedback with a bit of um, discretion, discernment, right? But usually there's something in what they have to offer that's that's worth uh, for us to consider and say, is there some way that I can refine my behavior in a way that is uh, going to help me to be a more supportive Dharma friend? A, uh, another benefit that Sangha offers is that it provides us a way to test our Dharma understanding and actualization. So we have, might have all these ideas about practice and about the Dharma that we maybe read in a book, 
right? And then we encounter our, te you know, the teachers, we encounter peers and other people who have been practicing longer than we have perhaps, or more intensely. And then sometimes in Dharma discussions or classes, or maybe even while just having tea with a friend in the courtyard, uh, we realize that our understanding is maybe not, not quite correct, right? And uh, so we find out ways that our understanding is incomplete, or actually often what I find is we're provided a whole nother way of looking at something or understanding something that gives it a more fuller uh, expression. And we also might discover where it is in our practice that we need to develop further skills and competencies. You know, for example, where we need to be more patient or understanding or less judgmental and rigid. Uh, Sangha also serves as a field in which we encounter our own karmic conditioning in relationship to others, right? And we can explore the ways to work through that conditioning, to be able to move beyond it and to heal. So in other words, Sangha can serve as a safe place to experiment with new ways of being, where you can kind of try on different ways of speaking, of moving, or being in your body, you know, uh, or behaving. And these are often probably ways that have maybe run counter to how it is that you learn to be growing up, right? So maybe we learned in our family system of origin that it was not okay to express ourselves or um, that it wasn't okay to express our needs or even to have needs. Uh, maybe it wasn't okay to sh uh, show certain emotions such as anger or sadness or to be vulnerable, right? And so Sangha offers us a supportive field in which we can explore a different way of being that are counter to that conditioning. So we can explore what it is to speak our truth, right? What it is to feel what we're feeling to experiment with letting our defenses down right? and being uh, kind of relaxing our insecurities. And the truth is that our healing at a deeper level requires vulnerability. Right? Even if we've been hurt once before by people in the past or even by Sangha members, you know, vulnerability invites us to cultivate the capacity to open our hearts again as a means to come back into harmonious relationship with others, which is something that's essential to how it is that we're together in Sangha. To my way of thinking, Zen is fundamentally about relationship. Uh, it's about how to be in relationship with our experience, with other beings, and with the world in ways that lessen our suffering right? and tap into a fundamental feeling of aliveness and interconnectedness. So as social animals, of course, we need other people for our survival. It's just built into us as beings. And we also get to know ourselves through our relationship to others. So it's very important that we be with others. And I think many of the ways that we might come to practice and begin to join with the Sangha 
is that at some deep level, all of us are looking for a sense of belonging, right? A sense of feeling connected to something greater than ourselves and which our presence and our participation matter. So, you know, a sense of belonging isn't so easy to pin down in words. You feel it, you know it, uh, just by the felt sense of it, right? But I think it includes the experience of being seen, of being understood, and being valued, you know, that others around us, you know, care for our well-being and our happiness, and that they generally accept us, even all of our faults and our quirks, you know, their hearts are big enough and spacious enough to embrace us as we are, right? And, you know, we may or may not look to Sangha for uh, this, to fulfill this sense of longing in some way, to address it, but Sangha can certainly be a way to experience it. And sadly, it's not uncommon for people in sanghas to wonder whether or not they belong. Uh, you know, I've had that question two or times. Do I belong here? Is this really my sangha? Is this really my tribe? Particularly if they don't see others who reflect their own experiences. For example, who look like them, who have a shared cultural uh, background or shared cultural values. So that's understandable. And this is why it's important for sangha to strive to be as inclusive and welcoming as possible so that everyone who comes into Sangha has a chance to really sincerely explore and engage in Zen practice to the degree that they, they really want to take up Zen practice. Now, while being in Sangha could bring very uh, lots of benefits and joys, it can also have some challenges and problems. Anyone have some challenges and problems in Sangha? Oh, I was going to say, no one's raising their hand, but <laughs> they're very kind of like, oh, yeah, okay. So, okay. So, no Sangha is perfect, of course, right? And I don't think actually a Sangha would be beneficial to our practice if it was perfect. I would say, if you found the perfect Sangha, get out of there, right? Because you need something to really work with. Even in the Buddhist time, the Sangha wasn't perfect. You know, those 227 guidelines that I mentioned previously for conduct in the monasteries in Buddhist time, right? Uh, that the monks were expected to observe were essentially because every time, whenever there was a particular problem in the Sangha, and one of, you know, the monastics went to the Buddha complaining, someone's house doing this, right? The way the Buddha addressed it was to come up with a guideline right, to, you know, be able to help people to be more mindful and to uh, observe and support harmony and uh, in the community again, right? And even at City Center, we have uh, what we call the Shingi, which are gui gui guidelines for conduct, with the same idea how this particular community might organize itself to be mindful and considerate and supportive of each other as a way to create a harmonious practice field together as much as possible, right? 
And of course, the reality is we often need difficulties in Sangha as a means to grow and deepen, right? So you know, those of us who are committed to the Bodhisattva path of supporting the liberation of all beings need to fully enter into the mud of human relationships and karmic entanglements, right? It's only in the muddy waters of Sangha that the lotus of our practice can grow and fully bloom. So you are all right now in muddy waters and you are all a bunch of lotuses that are blooming, popping up, right? So notice that as you sit here with each other. Of course, some of the challenges we might experience in uh, community may include feeling of social anxiety, right? Particularly when we first enter into uh, a sangha. Um, there also might be the fear of making mistakes, especially in Zen with all its forms and ceremonies. Everyone have the experience of ever being afraid you're going to make a mistake here? Yep. I still have those thoughts sometimes. I'm like, oh, no, I'm going to make a mistake, right? Every time I give a Dharma talk, I'm like, oh, no, I'm going to make a mistake. I'm opening my mouth, right? We might have the fear of being rejected or, worse yet, being seen, right? Warts and all, right? Can't hide in Sangha. Oftentimes, it seems that no matter how hard we've tried to get away from our family of origin, there's always someone in the Sangha who knows exactly how to push our buttons, right? Just like our siblings did, right? The way they talk, the way they kind of look at us and so on. We just have all this kind of like, oh no, it's my parents or my, my brother again, right? Then there's the possibility of being hurt or by being disillusioned by uh, others, including by our own teachers, who frankly are just themselves messy human beings who are working through their karma, right? So we have this idea that our teachers are going to be perfect. They're not. They're human, just like us. So we learned when we are hurt, disillusioned by others in the Sangha member, you know, others in the Sangha, how to work with that and to work through our karmic conditioning. You might also experience frustration with how a Sangha is run or organized. Or you might be disappointed that a particular Sangha doesn't have a demographic that reflects your identities or intersectionalities. You might even find yourself angry when you think your Sangha isn't giving enough attention to a particular social or political or cultural or environmental issue that really matters to you. Or you get annoyed when teachers bring up social justice issues in a Dharma talk when all you really want them to do is expound on the brilliance of Dogen. So this is all to say that engaging in Sangha offers us uh, what Zenis call practice opportunities, many practice opportunities, endless practice opportunities to work with all the myriad ways that being in Sangha challenges or triggers us, right? Sooner or later in Zen, you're going to come across the analogy that Sangha practice is potato practice. And we are all like potatoes, right? We're all potatoes in a big pot that need to be cleaned, scrubbed free of our karmic dirt. And my understanding is many traditional cultures, one of the quickest ways to clean potatoes was to put them all together in a big pot 
and then stir them with a long stick, right? And in this way, all the potatoes would rub against each other and rubbing in the process, rubbing all the dirt off of them, right? At the same time. So uh, another familiar analogy for Sangha practice is that of a rock tumbler. You may have heard this one in which we kind of polish and smooth each other's blind spots and rough edges as we go inevitably bumping into each other in Sangha. Uh, in time, you know, in these rock tumblers, the song jewel becomes more polished and kind of begins to shine more with a certain sense of harmony because those rough edges have been uh, lessened. Right? And so this potato washing and this rock tumbler analogies, they illustrate the efficiency of power of Sangha, or what we might call togetherness practice. So Sangha is a togetherness practice. The thing is when we encounter various forms of difficulties and challenges and we work through them along with others in Sangha, then the rewards and the benefits can be significant and actually truly um, transformative. We, for example, we might learn to trust more, not just ourselves, uh, others, but ourselves. We learn to maybe trust our Buddha nature more. We might also develop the confidence and the capacity to navigate life's uncertainties and problems and conflicts with greater ease. You know, I've noticed myself over the years of practice, when things go wrong, I'm a little less kind of agitated and concerned about it. It's like, okay, I think, I think we can surf this. You know, we can work with it, do our best. We also discover and make deeper connections with others. And this is connections that are actually based on authenticity and a genuine love rather than our trying to kind of mold ourselves to feel some kind of societal expectation or obligation, right? We also, uh, meeting our fears and discomforts, we're able to cultivate courage and inner strength. Right? And when we're around others who challenge and irritate us, we're able to explore the power of unconditional acceptance. And when we're hurt or disillusioned by others in the Sangha, then we are given the opportunity to practice compassion and forgiveness. When else are you gonna practice compassion and forgiveness if not with others around you? We also learn to let go of, or you could say hold more lightly, our preferences and our expectations our likes and our dislikes. Right? And in doing so, we begin to be able to meet people and circumstances with more of what we know as beginner's mind, right? a flexible, open mind. And then when we feel somewhat alone and vulnerable, we also learn the power of reaching out to others and connecting, right? sharing what's going on for us, rather than getting enclosed in our own self-absorption. Uh, so of course, a harmonious, supportive sangha doesn't stay that way with some care and attention. And the truth is, again, you know, you don't need a perfect sangha. Right? A family or community doesn't have to be perfect in order to be helpful. 
but we take refuge in Sangha because there are enough people who have the compassion and the groundedness and the insight to embrace others who maybe do not yet have these particular capacities, right? And in doing so, encourage them in developing that. Just as a farmer needs to ensure that the soil environment in which they plant their crops is conducive to a successful yield, so too are we each responsible for health, um, for fostering a healthy enough sangha environment and one in which our practice and the practice of others can successfully take uh, root and grow. So if you want to experience a world which is loving, supportive, and conducive to realizing liberation and the alleviation of suffering, then we, each of us, has to contribute to creating the conditions for that world to manifest and do so through our own actions and behaviors. In other words, we need to make an investment of time and effort, not only in practice, but and uh, but also in sangha, just as you would with a one-on-one relationship. One-on-one relationship. So if you have a partner, you know it's usually expected you're going to spend a lot of time and energy nourishing that relationship. Sangha is a relationship that you equally need to give time and attention and energy to if you want it to be a healthy relationship, right? So our Collective efforts are what help to create the energy and the vitality of Sangha. Each of our individual contributions to that uh, field of practice. So our presence here, particularly when it's a mindful presence, contributes to that energy. And when we're absent, that energy is lessened. And for many of you who uh, have been in uh, Sashin or lived in residential practice, when you notice certain people missing from the Zendo, it really affects you. You can feel that the container has shifted in some way. Maybe it doesn't feel as supportive. And so uh, your presence matters. It's important what you bring just by showing up. Yeah. And to be part of a community means actively being part of a reciprocal exchange of giving and receiving. Again, this is dana paramita, right? The circle of generosity. So our contributions, by the way, of our active presence, whether it's in meditation, in dharma programs, and dharma talks like this, practice groups, other sangha activities, right? As well as our contributions of time, uh, labor, finances, and forth, so forth, but what actually sustain the practice field on which we depend, right? So it's for our benefit also. And of course, each of us is going to participate to the degree that we're able to at any particular time. So there's not a judgment in there that practice and your contribution to a sangha should look a certain way. You have to discern for yourself, where can I invest my time and energy given the circumstances in my life? And then make your best effort to show up in that way. And I do have this kind of thought that in many ways, we get from Sangha what we're able to put into it, right? So this reciprocal experience of being in Sangha. 
So thank you again for all the ways in which you have cared for and polished and cherished the Sangu Jewel that is San Francisco Zen Center. Thich Han once predicted that the next Buddha, the future Buddha, Maitreya, will be a Sangha, right? So it just won't be one Buddha. It will be a collective of Kalyana Mitras, Dharma friends, right? Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the San Francisco Zen Center. Our Dharma talks are offered free of charge, and this is made possible by the donations we receive. Your financial support helps us to continue to offer the Dharma. For more information, please visit sfcc.org and click Giving. May we all fully enjoy the Dharma.